From Lansing Community College, this is LCC Connect, and this is Land Stories, with me, David Seawick. Each episode explores a different topic, such as the people, business, neighborhoods, communities, buildings, and other phenomena that make up the history of our college and our region. We tell stories, and in doing so, we connect the past to the present. We tell stories indeed on Land Stories, and this week I am very honored to have a very special guest in the episode. We are going to discuss some important signs that have popped up. Yes, I said that. Signs, as in that very thing that one stares at all the time, actually, when we're out and about, because we see signs everywhere. And on this episode of Land Stories, we're going to look at some of the historic signs that have been here in the Lansing community over the years and learn a little bit about them. And welcome very much. Uh, appreciate you in the studio today, Dan. Thank you, David. And Dan Seawick is my brother. He's actually my twin brother, which is really cool. And I don't have the opportunity to interview him very much, really for anything. So when I asked him to come into the studio and talk to us for a few minutes today about signs, I was delighted when he agreed to do it. Thank you very much for having me, David. So, Dan, we'll get to your background a little bit here. I thought it'd be interesting to start off by actually asking you a couple of questions about signs and and the nature of them. And not to catch you off guard a little bit, but knowing that Lansing was founded as a city back in the 1840s, and of course it was founded to be the new capital of Michigan, if I had to ask you a question of, what do you think was the first sign that ever went up in Lansing, what would it be? What kind of a sign would it be? Do you think it was a sign for a business or a road sign or something of that nature or welcome to Lansing sign? Uh, It would have likely been a road sign or a sign for a church, Mm -hmm. perhaps even a sign for the cemetery. Sure. You know, that may seem like kind of an odd question to ask. What was the first sign that ever went up in the community? But signs are really important. And usually the signs that people encounter every day are wayfinding signs. I past many wayfinding signs on my way to the studio here, and I imagine you did as well. So Lansing Community College has a really interesting way sign on our campus. It's a sign that's both historic in where it used to be, and it has a historic story to tell and what has been done to that sign recently. The sign I'm referring to is on the corner of Shiawassee Street and Ionia Street, right in downtown Lansing, on the edge of Lansing Community College's campus. It's a wayfinding sign that is triangular in shape, and it is a tall pillar that stands about 10 feet tall or so. And at one time, it actually stood a few blocks away on roughly the corner of Kalamazoo and Townsend Streets in downtown Lansing, where the old YMCA building was. A few years ago, Lansing Community College acquired the sign. Um, Actually, the sign and some of the labor involved in moving that sign to its location were generously donated by Julie Lawton and her real estate company. So, Dan, one of the things we discovered when we moved that sign was that it essentially had a complex construction that consisted of three parts to it. And I want to ask you about one of those parts. One of those parts was the appearance of stained glass. And we were able to have some of that stained glass appearance, we, meaning Lansing Community College, reproduced when that sign was moved over to its current location. Back in the day, when that sign was put in, which is when that building was built, right after World War II, we're talking the 40s, Dan, how common was it that somebody would have actually put 
something like stained glass, or at least uh, the visual effect thereof, on a sign. Was that rare back then, or was that something that you would have seen common? Well, a sign like that is really designed to do a couple things. So what do all signs do? They convey a message. In the case of that one, though, the message was to tell a little bit about the building, mm-hmm. perhaps the architect on it, some of the people involved in it, a little bit about the building itself. So because of that, though, that sign was intended to incorporate into the architecture of the building. Sure. So in that sense, it's kind of like, almost like an artistic rendering of the building itself in miniature form. Yes, exactly. And artistic's actually an important word there. Because at that time, in the 1940s, sign making was still very much an art. Mm-hmm. Okay, And over the course of really the last part of the 20th century and into now, sign making has very much turned into, uh, it's really transitioned from an art to a science and, mm-hmm. and really every aspect of it. Obviously, there are still artistic elements involved in any good sign making, but at the time that sign went in, it was very much an art. And that type of sign would have been looked at as much an art piece as it was a communication device. The stained glass, that's why it was incorporated. And you still see that nowadays in certain type of signs, all of the techniques involved in making it are very different. Sure, I imagine so. And, and the techniques are probably different because of both a change in availability materials and a change in skill set. Is that correct? That is correct. I know that you and I were talking uh, just a few days ago about a couple of the, uh, well, a few actually, the really neat old signs that one encounters in driving or walking around Lansing community here. And in doing so, we were discussing that idea that signs can be art, they can be wayfinding, they can convey a message. And one of the signs that you brought up, if I remember right, when you and I were discussing, was for the uh, Pruden building. Which sign did you have in mind when we were driving by that building the other day? The Pruden Wheel, later Motor Wheel Works. Of course, many people who live in the Lansing community are familiar with the building, or at least they've driven down Saginaw Street there Mm -hmm. and seen the smokestack, what's left of the smokestack from the factory. Sure. So next time you drive by that, you happen to look at it, you'll see the word Pruden on it. Mm -hmm. And the way that was manufactured was it was put in right into the uh, structure of the smokestack itself. Mm -hmm. So the decorative brick that covered the smokestack, they changed the color of certain bricks to create the word prudent. And that would have been considered a landmark at the time Mm -hmm. for obviously the company that put the stack up and put the factory up, you know, something they would have been very proud of. Oh, sure. And you would have been able to see it for quite a considerable distance away especially back then, as Lansing did not have any buildings in it at the time that were taller than the Capitol Dome. And there's a specific reason for that, actually. For a good number of years, the city of Lansing had an ordinance that forbid any construction company from building a structure uh, that was taller than the Capitol Dome, the Capitol Dome intending to be the overwhelming point of focus when one was to get a vista in which the uh, skyline of Lansing would appear in the distance. But, of course, with the uh, growth of Lansing, structures ended up eventually exceeding that height. Now, Dan, you and I talked about another sign as well when we were doing our research for this episode, and you and I actually were just talking about that here a few moments ago. And it's another sign that actually stems from 
way back in the day, we're talking even before World War II. What sign is that that we were contemplating? That was the old Michigan Theater building on what we now call Washington Square. Mm -hmm. But before we get into that, I want to touch on a little more about the prudent wheel sign. It's interesting to look at old aerial photos of a city, Mm -hmm. one the size of Lansing or bigger. It's interesting to see what stands out because obviously they didn't have Google Maps back then. But the idea was kind of the same. And getting back a little bit to what you talked about with Lansing, building ordinance and whatnot, Mm -hmm. sometime if you're in the... Capital Area District Library, the downtown branch, Mm -hmm. they have a very nice overhead shot of Lansing, and it kind of explains the general, what they called at the time, the bowl concept, Sure, where everything was to be a bowl, essentially, Hmm. into the capital. Oh, really? Yes, and the capital was kind of the center of it. Mm. So that's why they wanted the buildings all to be shorter than I see. I see. That's fascinating. But if you look at an overhead shot Mm -hmm. of a city at that time, you'll see, like, typically smokestacks is something you'll see, or water towers, because obviously the industrial enterprises needed them Mm -hmm. to produce the products, but they also use that as valuable advertising space. Oh, of course. And and we'll get back to the Michigan Theater sign here in a bit, but immediately two of the things pop into my mind that I don't want to forget about, so we'll follow up with them right now. One of them is this idea that signs become a part of city planning and urban planning. Yes. Right? And, of course, well, I say of course, it's obvious to you and I, Dan, but not necessarily perhaps to some of the folks that are listening. Communities have sign ordinances, don't they? Very much so. And the word planning there is very important mm-hmm. because it helps plan the aesthetics of a community. Obviously, there are trade-related safety concerns with signs. Mm -hmm. So that sort of thing is dictated by the ordinance to some extent, but also the planning. So cities have consistent aesthetics and whatnot Mm -hmm. with their signs. Sure. And, And this is an issue that comes up, I think, in any community that is going through changes. And changes could be population growth, could be population decline, it could be a major change in the business structure. A variety of things encompass community change. And oftentimes, the sign ordinance or say ordinances related to how many uh, entrances or exits can be on a road, any kind of planning, any kind of access point planning that takes place, the sign has to be a part of that, doesn't it? Absolutely. And there's been uh, you know, a lot of opportunities lately in this area, at least in my mind, to contemplate this sort of thing. And actually, Dan, as you and I were talking a few weeks ago, planning this episode out, one of the things that generated the idea in my mind was... Driving down 496 right after the construction was completed here, the most recent round of it, and seeing all those brand new green interstate highway signs hanging up and watching some of those get on with the construction work is really what got me thinking about what an important role signs play historically. Now, when it comes to a sign ordinance, would a community like Lansing have had a sign ordinance going all the way back to its founding or at least something that would be equivalent of Well, what they likely would have had, at least ordinances that dictated the installation procedures as far as to make sure when a thing's haunted, it's not going to fall off the building and hit someone. Mm -hmm. There would have been certain construction codes dictating that, and certainly any lit sign because of the uh, electrical requirements. Okay, yeah. But as far as specific ordinances related to aesthetics and heights, 
I cannot speak for that. Okay. I, I do not know the answer to that question. Sure. Didn't mean to put you on the spot at all. Actually, you did answer it in a really good way, getting me thinking about another thing that we haven't touched on yet. But that, of course, is some of the science that goes into making signs, including signs that are electric. And maybe this is a good opportunity to get into that sign that we've mentioned here a few times in the last couple minutes or so, and that would be that Michigan Theater sign. Certainly. So to kind of paint a picture here, the Michigan Theater, as many of you may know, was located at uh, 217 South Washington Street here in Lansing Mm -hmm. in the uh, area we now call Washington Square. The building has had a few lives, if you will, and it's currently been redeveloped. It's actually a very nice space inside. Mm -hmm. You have a chance to go in there. Obviously, it's a lot different than what it was when it was a movie theater. Right. But it's a very nice space in the city. Mm -hmm. But at one point, it had a what we would call a theater, a movie theater marquee. Mm -hmm. And it had, if I can describe it, the sign would have had uh, a very tall, lit word that's Michigan Mm -hmm. going up and down the side of it. Mm -hmm. And then it would have had the area at the bottom where the playbill would have been put on with uh, some type of changeable lettering. Mm -hmm. The sign would have been lit with neon, combination of that and light bulbs, incandescent light bulbs. And it would have made an absolute incredible impression at the time. Oh, absolutely. And for anyone who is able to take a look at the Michigan theater that still exists in Ann Arbor, that'll paint a very good picture Mm -hmm. of what the sign would have looked like. That sign still stands. I do not know which parts of that are original and which parts have been restored, but it's, it's a beautiful sign nonetheless, mm-hmm. and uh, it's been taken well care of over the years. Sure, and as this is you know an audio recording, there'll be plenty of people out there right now that are Googling the Michigan Theater in Ann Arbor, which is good. That's kind of the point, and as you are doing that, or at least... If you're driving down the road or whatever, and it isn't exactly safe to be Googling right now, you can put in your mind what an old theater sign looked like. Now, what do they make these out of? What was the material this was made out of back then? Uh, They would have been composed of a few different components. The sign itself was primarily constructed of uh, porcelainized steel. Porcelainized steel? Wow. So they put a um, porcelainized enamel coating on steel. Mm Mm-hmm. And obviously in Michigan, it needs to stand up to the elements. Oh, sure. So that made it very, very durable. It would have made the steel resistant to corrosion. Mm -hmm. The best way I can describe it is anybody that has camped and used the old porcelainized enamel camp cooking cups and whatnot. It was similar to that. Mm Mm-hmm. And movie theater signs are, are among some of the most iconic around the country, I think, that I am not alone, and I suspect you would agree with me as well, Dan, that uh, some of the signs that seem to stick out whenever somebody drives into a small town they've not been to before, or even a bigger city they've not been to before, are these old movie theater signs where they still actually exist. For sure. They were very well made at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of the movie theaters were what we would call nowadays a chain, or perhaps a franchise model. So... They had a little bit of money to spend on their sign. Mm-hmm. And it was a very prominent, important part of the business, obviously. It was a essential part of their advertising. You mm-hmm. know, they didn't have Google. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so when people were driving down or walking down the street, they needed to grab attention. Mm-hmm. So they would spend a lot of money on the signs, and they would get a very 
good quality, durable sign. It was a very important part of the business. And as we talked about earlier, in addition to it being functional, they want that to be part of the architecture of the building. Oh, sure. So sure. it had to, had to stick out enough to get noticed, but it also had to fit in somewhat to the building's architecture. Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah. And you know the architectural styles uh, change over time right along with the signs, don't they? They do. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, and this is a little bit of, uh, um, I guess, a, a lot bit, actually, of the subjective part of a consideration when we're, um, you know, looking at signs. But at least in my mind, I think when a sign matches the architecture of the building, it provides a really interesting addition to the effect. But then at the same time, we've all encountered signs sometimes before that they just either they look out of place or you can't exactly put your mind around it as to why it doesn't fit, which gets me back to something that you had mentioned right towards the beginning of our conversation today that I want to go back to a little bit. And we can use that Michigan theater sign as an example, but we can use other signs around Lansing or any other community that anybody out there listening can think of. Technique. You had mentioned signs were an art, yes. and now they're a science. Very so tell me so. a little bit more about that. And again, we can use some of these signs you've already mentioned as an example here around Lansing or others you can think of. Sure. Well, if you take the Michigan Theater sign as an example, there is a few trades that went into making that. One of the most important ones would have been neon, mm-hmm. the trade of neon. The term neon or neon sign is kind of used almost generically now. When you say neon sign, most people think of the glowing glass that has the name of the business or the message they're trying to portray with it. Sure. But uh, a lot of people don't think about necessarily how that neon was made, and it involved a few different trades. Glass blowing, Mm -hmm. um, you had to heat the glass up and bend it Mm -hmm. to create the shape for the letters. Then you had to charge it with the gas. Originally, it was neon gas. Then later on, some other gases were used. And by charging it, we're, we're getting a little bit of chemistry here. We're <laughs> right. talking about essentially lighting up the gas, so to speak. That is correct. So we have a lot of electricity involved, mm-hmm. rare gases. Mm-hmm. And that certainly required an artist to put that together. And the engineer to figure out and how to get engineer. the gas in there, right? Exactly. And all this is going on way back in the 1920s. Yes. Yep. That's really something mm-hmm. to think about. A couple of things pop in my mind right now that are related to this, uh, this idea, which I really am fascinated by, of, of a combination of art and science going into something like a sign. And, of course, we encounter so many signs and daily. And, and to get back to that YMCA sign that we started talking about at the beginning of the show, I was in my office here at Lance Community College a few years ago. And uh, I can't remember if I got a phone call or if I made the phone call, but one way or the other, I ended up talking to one of the librarians at the Capital District Library, the main branch library, downtown Lansing. And, and as it turns out, the original sign, the plaque, the building plaque that had gone into the Carnegie Library building on Lansing Community College's campus, which is now half of our our university center building. I say our because I am on the campus of Lansing Community College right now. And that original build plaque was really neat to have because obviously it gave the information of when the building was built, but then it also was nice to hold this artifact from 
at that time. It had been over 100 years ago, and it's been even more than 100 years ago now uh, since that building was built and that plaque was cast. To hold that in hand and think to yourself, there was an artisan that made this, there was a technique that went into this, and that plaque was very much a sign because its purpose was to inform people about when the building was built. Absolutely. And those type of things... The bronze plaque, for instance, mm-hmm. that very much involved art and science as far as creating the mold mm-hmm. to make the sign and then uh, the mechanical skill required to pour the metal and then finish it off. And a little bit of that also, the same type of techniques would have been used on that YMCA sign mm-hmm. we spoke of earlier. Sure. Figure with the stained glass that required a stained glass artisan mm-hmm. to work all those pieces solder them together with the lead and whatnot, the mm-hmm. different skills involved in doing that. Then, of course, you would have had the mason, the masonry skills required to make the column, mm-hmm. and then the metalworking skills required to make the plaque. Sure. And we at uh, Lansing Community College had to replicate some of that original craftsmanship that was done when we had that sign moved. Our, uh, our talented beyond any and all means of describing it, artist in-house, Bruce Mackley, uh, was able to recreate some of the elements with the uh, stained glass recreation that we did on that. Yours truly, actually, don't ask me how I got involved in it, but I ended up doing the artwork for the plaques, and then we had a company that did the castings on those, and then we were able to make those plaques and deliver them to us. But moving that sign itself was quite the project, and of course, I'm trying to make sure I don't forget anybody in mentioning this, um, sign who is involved in it because it tells us about how these things were put up to the beginning. We had some of our own folks involved in in the final uh, installation of that sign, and and I'll put a shout out to uh, Ray Johnson and Brad Latuzic in particular of putting the plaques on that sign after we got them from the mm-hmm. from the company that made them. That's funny because when you get to that point of the process. The job site probably actually didn't look all that different than it did in the 1940s when that plaque went in. Mm-hmm. Sure. Still a hand labor involved in putting the plaque mm-hmm. in and whatnot. So, yeah. yeah. Really something else to see that, uh, you know, see that legacy last this long. Well, this episode it has flown by as it usually does. And, Dan, I want to thank you very, very much for coming in and talking to us. I will do the same I always do. I will extend an invite for a future episode because there is absolutely no shortage of signs to talk about. When it comes to Lansing, they're such an important part of our community's history. I can't thank you enough for coming in here and helping us learn more. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, David. You've been listening to Land Stories with me, David Seawick. For more information on this program and to stream past episodes, visit lccconnect.org. LCC Connect is the official home of the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College, offering hours of original and exciting programming. Hosted by faculty, staff, and community members, LCC Connect explores our college's work in the community, important topics in higher education, and our vision for the future. Catch the vibe on 89.7 FM or online at lccconnect.org. Until next time, remember, keep telling good stories. Celebrating one year of LCC Connect, visit us online at lccconnect.com and click on the Celebrate tab to find out more. We are LCC Connect. 
Voices. Vibes. Vision. The Lansing Community College Massage Clinic is open to the public and provides an opportunity for the students of the massage program to gain valuable client experience. Relaxation massages and therapeutic massages are both available at a nominal fee. Visit lcc.edu slash massage for more information. Looking for future leaders we can trust and believe in? Look no further than the high school student athletes right here in Michigan. High school sports teach young people how to be effective leaders. It begins by making their grades and being on time for practice. It includes learning to listen, following directions, accepting responsibility, being a good role model. And it's about respect for officials, opponents, the rules, and each other. The result, it transcends sports. It gives us hope for the future. High school sports. There's so much more than just a game. This message presented by the Michigan High School Athletic Association and the Michigan Interscholastic Athletic Administrators Association. Thank you for listening to LCC Connect. I'm Paul Schwartz, and I host a show called The Safety Plan. The Safety Plan is about the latest cyber scams and how to avoid them. You can catch The Safety Plan here on LCC Connect or listen anytime at lccconnect.org. The annual job and internship fair at Lansing Community College will take place Wednesday, March 22nd at LCC's downtown campus. More than 70 employers will be in attendance to talk about job and internship opportunities. Anyone is welcome to attend, and this event is free. More information and event registration are available at lcc.edu slash jobfair. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. This is Amy Wagonar from the Historical Society of Michigan with a Michigan History Moment. Hilda Mueller was the best driver in the world, and she competed in a male-dominated field. Auto racing? No. Hydroplane racing. Hilda Mueller was born in Bay City, Michigan in 1909. After high school graduation, she took a job clerking in the Bay City Cash Dry Goods Company. But Mueller longed for excitement. In 1929, veteran hydroplane racer Loretta Fillion issued a challenge for other women to compete with her in the upcoming Eastern Michigan Carnival races in Bay City. Mueller jumped at the chance. She borrowed a racing boat from boat builder and racer Melvin Brady. Mueller took it for a spin. The motor's kill switch failed and Mueller crashed the boat into the docks. Afraid to face the huge repair bill that she was sure awaited her, she ran away. But Melvin Brady wasn't angry. He caught up with her, assured her that the boat could be repaired, and offered her a chance to drive it in the upcoming races. In her first race with Loretta Fillion, Mueller tore open her boat's hull and barely made it to shore. But she learned fast and, in the next two heats, defeated the reigning champion. In 1930, Hilda Mueller became a professional driver in the National Outboard Association. She won her first championship in a Memorial Day race against 15 male drivers in a Class C race in Worcester, Massachusetts. 
That October, Mueller won a national championship in a Class A race in Middleton, Connecticut, with a speed of just over 32 miles per hour. In 1931, Mueller traveled more than 10,000 miles on the hydroplane racing circuit and broke six world records, including the Class A Division II record of 38.23 miles per hour. In October, Mueller defended her Class A title on Lake Merritt in Oakland, California. There, she earned her second consecutive national championship. Hilda Mueller suffered a disappointing 1932. She couldn't find a boat and motor sponsor until September and failed to place in a Chicago race. She raced at the national championships in Bay City in October, but flipped her boat and was eliminated. Later that day, Mueller struck a chunk of wood in the Saginaw River and disabled her motor. Hilda Mueller retired from hydroplane racing when she married in 1933. She passed away in Gaylord, Michigan in 1978. This Michigan History Moment was brought to you by michiganhistorymagazine.org. This is LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Coming in March to the Black Box Stage, Lansing Community College Performing Arts presents I Knock at the Door, a play written by Sean O'Casey and adapted by Paul Shire. This play tells the story of a family being held together by a loving and strong mother while class and religious turmoil threaten to pull them apart. I Knock at the Door will be featured March 16th through the 18th. For more information, visit lcc.edu slash show info. Hi, my name's Bob. Hi, Bob. So I see this ad on TV. It says I can reduce my debt by 50%, so I call. They told me to stop paying my bills, stop talking to my creditors. It didn't seem right, but they said they'd take care of everything. I gave them thousands of dollars, but most of it went to their fees. Getting out of debt is neither quick nor easy. There are those who will tell you anything just to win your trust. It sounded perfect. I did everything they told me to do. They never paid my creditors. They didn't even contact them. Turns out I'm even more in debt because the fees and the interest on my cards kept piling up. Bad advice from so-called experts can make your financial situation worse. And the bank turned me down for a mortgage. And that's when I realized my credit was shot. I should have gone straight to my creditors to begin with. There is a better way to get help. Talk to your creditors directly or to find a nonprofit agency near you. Visit DebtAdvice.org. DebtAdvice.org. Real solutions for real people. This has been a public service message. On the success scenario, we meet and hear from current LCC students who face adversity, why they chose LCC, and how they turned their situation into a successful one. Definitely now after second semester, my self-confidence is up there. I can do this and I can do this well. Age has nothing to do with it. Like I told you before, I have, the, I have notes from that first meeting and it was, take your age out of it. You deserve to be here. You belong here. I'm Dustin Abrego. The Success Scenario is a program dedicated to inspiring students towards a path of success. You can listen to this episode and past episodes anytime online at lccconnect.org. Explore college on your terms. Summer registration opens March 28th at lcc.edu slash get started. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. We but mirror the world. All the tendencies present in the outer world are to be found within us. If we change ourselves, the tendencies in the world will also change. 
This paraphrased quote from Mahatma Gandhi is the basis of the program you are about to hear. I'm Dedalian, and this is Shining Stars, a program dedicated to searching out and bringing attention to individuals and organizations that are fostering positive change within our community and within our world. Thank you for joining me here on Shining Stars. Today's guest says she has a lifelong passion for storytelling and service to others. From her first job driving the famous Oscar Mayer Wienermobile to her current role as the executive director of a Michigan-based nonprofit. She has successfully integrated her passions into her career. Her resume includes nonprofit fund development, communications, event management, and corporate marketing functions, and her success in all of these areas have brought her to her current role. She serves at Youth Solutions, an organization dedicated to creating opportunities for disadvantaged youth. Joining me today via video conference is Youth Solutions Executive Director Molly Waller. Welcome to the show, Molly. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Good to see you. Even if it is virtually, yes, it is It is good to be able to see you and at least talk to you uh, about Youth Solutions. I just recently became aware of Youth Solutions. So let's get started by having you expand on the mission of what Youth Solutions does. Wonderful. I love talking about our mission. Our organization is really dedicated to inspiring and connecting youth to a future beyond their imagination. We started in Benton Harbor, Michigan in 2008, and it was the very first Jobs for Michigan's Graduates program at Benton Harbor High School, and we are the state-based affiliate of the Jobs for America's Graduates, which is a national organization, a national nonprofit, with the same mission. So from 2008, when we served 76 youth, to today, when we serve over 4,500 youth around the state. Our mission is to help young people understand careers that are available, understand the education needed to get to those careers, and teach them the life skills so that they can see, so that they can succeed in their education, in their employment, and in their lives. We do have a strong presence in the Lansing area, and knowing that your podcast is coming from Lansing Community College, we do have programs right there in the area, and we work very closely with the Capital Area Michigan Works Agency. Together, we serve hundreds of young people in the area. And again, we serve around 4,500 statewide. It's a very inspiring endeavor. I, I am, like I said, I am very happy to hear that you guys are doing this work. Um, and I, I can only imagine that it takes, obviously, more than you to make this happen. So how important, and, and kind of give me an idea of what the organization is like uh, as far as your colleagues and coworkers go. Yeah, that's a, a wonderful question. You know, the colleagues and coworkers that we have at Youth Solutions are some of the most talented people I personally have ever worked with. I think there's a few strengths in our organization. Number one, we have folks at Youth Solutions with a range of talents, whether they have been a superintendent at a school or a counselor at a school. Maybe they've been in marketing for years. Mm-hmm. We've really uh, been able to have a robust and wide-ranging group of folks that are very, very mission-driven. And then you look at the strength of our network, and our network is made up over a, of over 100 specialists. There are teachers. They might not all have a teaching certificate, so we call them specialists. Those people are the positive role models in our young adult lives. 
a lot of the youth we serve come from either single parent or guardian households, mm-hmm. lack of a support system at home, lack of academic performance and motivation. They have economic barriers, social barriers, environmental barriers. And so the people that I get the chance to work with and am honored to work with are these specialists that really work with the youth every day. And the primary way we do that is through the Michigan Works agencies that exist around the state. There's mm. 16 of them. Okay. And we work to we work with them to actually deliver the services at one over 100 different programs around the state. Glad you expanded on that because I honestly thought it was quite a bit smaller, but this sounds like it's uh, become quite a, a large organization. Where exactly did this all kind of originate? Where did it come from? What's the history behind it? So in 2008, Michigan uh, was looking at a way to help increase education and employment success for young people. And by young people, we serve youth anywhere from about age 11, sixth grade-ish, mm-hmm. up to 24. And so we started a single program in Benton Harbor called Jobs for Michigan's Graduates based on the national model, the Jobs for America's Graduates model. And the model is really about infusing life skills mm-hmm. and high contact hours to help youth remove the barriers that they face to education and employment success. And so in 2008, we rolled it out. And then we saw the success, so we expanded it to other parts of Southwest Michigan. And then as we were talking with other workforce development agencies around the state, they said this might be something that would be beneficial for their area. So we continued to grow, and then we were able to secure a uh, grant from the state of Michigan, the Department of Labor and Economic Opportunity. And with that, we were really able to expand to be statewide. And so now we have relationships with 15 of the 16 workforce agencies. We provide programs in over 100 locations. And our youth hail from over three to 400 different cities, towns, and villages, truly covering from Marquette down to Monroe. Very cool. It sounds like it has become quite quite an organization, uh, starting somewhat small, but then getting quite a bit bigger. That's it's awesome that you guys are doing this. The show is called Shining Stars, and very often I like to dive in a little bit about whoever it is I'm talking to a little bit more. Um, not not to say that there is an importance in the organization, but I, I I like to hear the people's stories that are are driving these organizations. Uh, so in your case, as you look back. At, at a younger Molly, did you think that this is the type of work you would be doing? You know, when you started reading my biography, it talked about having a servant heart or, or uh, storytelling and service to others. Mm-hmm. That's been a part of who I am since as long as I can remember, in all honesty. Uh, volunteering as a young person, even in my jobs, whether it was with Oscar Mayer or working for America's Dairy Farmers, there was always a service element there. And I always wanted to help people become whatever it is they wanted to be. I think one of the joys in my career so far is the number of people that I've been able to mentor, Mm -hmm. either as a direct mentor or as their boss, and having them continue to succeed and continue to to stay in touch. I think that's one of the things that I bring to this world and to the different jobs that I have. And it's really about how can I help that person be everything they want to be, which ties so closely to the mission of Youth Solutions. How can we help youth become everything that they want to be? Certainly. So it really has always been a part of my core being and a part of what brings me true inner joy. 
And as I look at your background, it seems to me you've had quite a bit of success in almost any field you've worked at. And I feel like one of the biggest key components, and I'm sure you'll agree with me, to success in, in your professional life is lifelong learning. How do you keep lifelong learning as a part of what you do and who you are? I do completely agree. Lifelong learning is essential. And so for me, throughout my career, whether it's been taking additional uh, classes, maybe not necessarily for a credit, but for ongoing professional development, um, I've also been trained and continue to work on my communication skills. Um, We have a great program through LinkedIn Learning, and we access that quite frequently. But then I'd say the one that maybe has the biggest impact is the people that I talk with on a regular basis whether they're through work or through friends groups or family, that's really where the lifelong learning comes in about what is it within me that I can improve? Mm -hmm. How can I be a better person in this world, a better mentor? How can I listen better? Listen to understand, not listen to reply. I think a lot of folks listen to reply. It's kind of our fast-paced society. But being able to listen to understand and try and put yourself as much as you can in someone else's shoes I think that's important and a big part of lifelong learning that is not a formal academic. It's Mm -hmm. a day-to-day experience. Listen to podcasts, read blogs that you connect to, audiobooks, those kinds of things I think are very important to round out the beauty of this gift that we have called life. Certainly, And, and listening is one of those things that as a communications person, I still to this day have difficulty from time to time where I'm like, I am not listening to what's happening right now. So, and, and you're right. It is definitely instrumental in lifelong learning and, and getting that knowledge. Uh, so tell me a little bit about uh, Youth Solution, you know, the impact, uh, the results, the accomplishments, some of the things that have happened where you're like, wow, this is awesome that we have, we have accomplished this. The best place to start is to share a story with you. Okay. There's a young man who came to us with very significant barriers to education and employment. When he joined our program, he was extremely shy, really didn't say much. He had a specialist who connected with him right from the get-go. She and he formed a very strong bond, and she was able to help him come out of his shell a little bit. He was interested in some type of work in maybe electrical energy, or he, he wasn't quite sure. So as she continued to work with him, he was able to go to our National Student Leadership Academy in Washington, D.C. First time he'd ever been on an airplane. First time he had ever left Inkster, Michigan. When they were coming back from the trip, she turned down his street and he said, same old house, same old neighborhood. And she said to herself right then and there, I never want you to have to feel that this is the same old house, same old neighborhood again. Mm-hmm. She helped him enroll in a Detroit Energy, DTE Energy program as a summer intern. The successful summer interns can then land an opportunity to work for DTE while they're going to Henry Ford Community College. He has successfully completed that part, and he is now working at DTE. That's just one amazing story of a young man who found a purpose and a sense of belonging, and I think that's what makes youth solutions and what we do so unique. We foster that sense of belonging. So if you look at our numbers, we have an over 90% graduation rate over 10 years running. We have between 80 and 85% of our young people either go on to post-secondary success, direct to employment, or to the military. 
And we stay with our young people for 12 months after they get their GED or graduate from high school. The reason being that is a pivotal transition time in a young person's life. How are you doing your first semester at community college? How is the job going? What do you need? Those additional services can really be that pivot point between staying in a post-secondary education or saying, I'm just going to, I'm just going to work. I'm just going to go do what my dad did. We want you to to do what you want. We want to expose you to all the many industries in Michigan that you could pursue a career in. Adults are great. We've served over 23,000 youth since 2008, and we're on target to serve about 4,500 to 5,000 again this year. That is, a, that is a wonderful story, and it is uh, awesome to hear. Obviously, you know, from your viewpoint, you look at uh, results or accomplishments in, first of all, a number basis, but also those personal stories. When you are actually personally going, hey, I feel like I'm making a difference. Is it those is it those personal stories or is it the numbers that you feel like, wow, this is really working? This is a good thing. It's the personal story. Yeah. That's really what gets me going every day. We have a couple different youth events. In fact, yesterday I was in Middleville, Michigan, which is not too far from Grand Rapids, and we're at one of our annual events where we bring youth together at different YMCAs and we do team building exercises. Mm -hmm. And to watch some of the real shy youth start the day being very hesitant, I'm Mm -hmm. not sure I want to try that rope climb, I'm not sure I want to try that rock climbing wall, and then to see the other youth encourage them, I'm right here if you need me. Let me help you. That, to me, is more motivating. We need the results for our funders and to show the change that we're making. Results are incredibly important. But it's when I see a young person blossom or I see someone that could never public speak, would have to run in the bathroom and be ill, to being a very good public speaker, one of our youth, that's what motivates. I was actually one of those shy kids when I was growing up, and I'm not even sure how I ended up where I'm at. The only thing I can say is I get to hide behind a microphone. So there you go. Uh, Did you have a good mentor? I would say that I had a, a couple of good mentors over my lifetime, and um, and that, that was helpful in breaking me out of my shell a little bit. Now. <laughs> it took mm-hmm. me a while. Uh, you kind of deal with some heavy subject matter here. You're talking about trying to level the playing field for a lot of youth, and, and I'm sure you see some hard cases. So, so what is it that you do personally to keep yourself positive when those moments come about? Because they do for everybody. It is a sometimes very heavy job when you know that a young person is going home to a food insecure household or during the pandemic when there was no Internet service and they would go to a public library parking lot try and get service to try and at least connect virtually to a class. To stay positive, part of me is innately positive. Growing up, it was always, oh, there goes Molly, always with a smile on her face. I think that that's an element. But I believe wholeheartedly any person can choose a positive outlook. I read a lot of research and articles on the power of being positive. Mm -hmm. How many positive comments can keep your positive momentum going. Good breeds good. How it can give you a internal chemical release of positive energy, of positive thinking. I do it by working out regularly, spending time with family and friends, participating in things that I enjoy, whether it's walking or watching a football game or uh, being out on the water or 
you know, any, any number of things, spending time with my nieces and nephews, even, even if it's just a, a quick five minute text to check in, surrounding myself with positive people who have positive things to say is definitely a way that I do it. And then it's also about making sure I'm there when someone else needs a shoulder. Mm-hmm. Because it's not just me that feels the heaviness. A lot of times it's our specialists who are right there with the youth who's calling them at literally 2 a.m. Yeah. And the specialist will talk to them. Giving them a shoulder, helping lift them up, that makes me feel good too. Oh, that carries over. Throw that positivity out there. It's, it's just going to go to somebody else and passed on and passed on. So one of my very favorite questions that I like to ask from time to time on the show is, give me your definition of positive change and explain to me how Youth Solutions fits into that. Positive change to me really is about making actions that influence a person or a situation to improve their outlook and their own situation. It can be as big as helping a young person find post-secondary and employment success. It can also be as behind the scenes as helping someone by giving them a compliment and helping them have a better day. Mm -hmm. Positive change can be big or small. My favorite quote is from The Alchemist, Mm -hmm. and I may not say it exactly, but the gist of it is a person's only true accountability in life is to find their true purpose. For me, positive change is my true purpose, and I think it should be everybody's because the power it has to make large-scale changes is absolutely enormous. I wholeheartedly agree, and it doesn't matter the amount of positivity you're putting out there. Even if you're just holding the door or smiling at somebody, making somebody's day a little bit better, that's, that little bit helps every time, and that's that's part of the idea yeah. behind this show, too. So what about uh, folks that want to make a positive change by helping out or, or assisting your organization in doing what you are doing? How would they go about doing that? Thank you for that question. I love it. So the best way to support us is to go to our website, www.ouryouthsolutions.org. If you wish to contribute financially, we would greatly appreciate that. Starting November 15th, we're going to be heading into our annual campaign uh, where we're hoping to raise around fifty dollars to $75,000 to help us support our mission. Mm-hmm. If you'd like to learn more about our programs and services, you can do that at the website, And then reach out to us. We can get you in touch with a local area. Maybe you are a teacher or a superintendent or a principal and you want this program in your school. Great. Maybe you are someone who interacts with a young person who would benefit from these services. Great. Reach out to us through the website. We're also on all the socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Very good. And I'll also have that information available on the uh, podcast notes for anybody that wants to check it out at lccconnect.org. Earlier you asked the question, did I have a mentor? I kind of held off on that a little bit because I I knew I was going to be asking you this a little bit later on. To answer your question, yes, I I would say my main mentor in my life was my mom. She was a single mom raising three young boys, and that is quite a bit to accomplish. So my question to you is... Who was your mentor? Who do you look up to and say, that's kind of my main inspiration? This answer will come to come as a surprise to no one. It's my father. My father is, my dad is my life hero. Talk about a person with a positive outlook. I am one of five girls. So you can only imagine the stress of five girls who fight quite a bit, all oh, being yeah. teenagers at about the same time. <laughs> but my dad is a, a man of strong character, integrity, 
great faith, positivity, perseverance through tough times, head over heels in love for 62 years with my mom. Oh, great. And they're now in their 80s and just amazing to see the unconditional love. And I wish that for every single human. And how he has mentored me is sometimes by not saying anything, but the lesson is profound. Or by saying just a few words and letting me ponder it. Or by sitting down and having a conversation with me. But he, to me, is everything a person should be, without a doubt. Very cool. Very cool. And it's, uh, it's amazing how we've got two completely different viewpoints, but we're both kind of landing in the same area. So that's good. That's very good. Uh, so do you have a life motto, something that you'd like to share with other folks where you're like, hey, this is a great way to look at life? My life motto is really tied to positive change. It's the golden rule. Treat others as you wish to be treated. I mm. treat people with a positive outlook. Hold the door for someone like you just mentioned. Say thank you to someone, a service person. If you can, leave a few extra pennies, dollars, whatever, on the tip. Thank people who are working and showing up because we know they're stressed. Thank the retail person. Thank the mail person. Go about your day with grace and well wishes Mm -hmm. and treat others the way you want to be treated. Okay. All right. And and, and you kind of like... Touched on it a little bit right there. What I was, where I was going next. One of the things that I learned, I do not consider myself a naturally positive person. It is something I have to work at, and part of my process is taking an account from time to time the things that I am grateful for. And I, I usually have a daily practice where I, I stop myself in the middle of the day and I say, "Okay, oh, this is what I, I am grateful for." What are you you grateful for beyond work? My health. Mm-hmm. My family, my friends, I have a very tight group of friends. We are family and friends-wise. We are very honest with each other. We help each other. We lift each other up. I am grateful for the air that I breathe. I'm grateful for the ability to live in Michigan, which is such my favorite place and enjoy four seasons. I'm grateful to be alive, and I'm grateful to have the opportunity to impact others. Mm. But mostly I'm grateful for my friends, my family, my health, and my ability to make a difference. That's awesome. Okay, so in your role, I would imagine that you do not get to have as much personal interaction with the youth as some folks in your your organization. But on those occasions that you do, uh, what are the types of advice, things that you would say to them? What would you say to a younger Molly, I guess, is the question. What I would say to a younger Molly or what I would say to the youth that we work with is try different things, learn about different things, be a curious person your whole life, a lifelong learner. Mm -hmm. There's so many careers out there and be patient with yourself. Mm -hmm. Your first career may not be your last career and that's okay. You have time. Discover what it is you like. Find a career that fits what you like and what you're good at. Try a lot of things. Give yourself patience and grace and treat others the way you want to be treated. Very cool. I will testify and be a testament to the fact that your first career choice may not be your final career choice. Very often that happens that way, and I think that happens for a lot of folks. When we were talking at one point, uh, there was something that you had said about the power of raising the voice of the youth in our work. What exactly do you mean by that? Our customer is the youth. Our customer is that young person that we want to help get on a path to education and employment success. 
raising their voice is critically important to help them do that. It's also critically important to us because the youth is our future. Mm -hmm. And so there's a number of things that we do, including we have a youth advisory council who help inform us on things connected to the programs that we deliver. We have an alumni network where we stay in touch with the young folks. And we have a series of web conversations called Coffee with a Purpose. Mm. And Coffee with a Purpose is where youth talk about topics of high interest to them. So next week we have one where we're going to be talking about careers, particularly in the energy sector because it's Careers and Energy Week, but also about energy itself. Starting in the spring, we're going to have a three-part web conversation where youth are going to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, things that are very important to them. We need to raise their voices to help them figure out what it is they stand for and what they want to do, but also to help us understand how do they see the world and how together can we work for positive change. DEI is definitely something that is um, making greater strides, and it is good to see. I do have one more question for you, but before we go, I, I want to say thank you very much for taking a little bit of time out of your day. It was wonderful to have the opportunity to talk and meet you. So thank you for that. And I also want to say keep up the great work there at Youth Solutions. Thank you so very much. All right, here we go. This is the uh, final question here, and this is one I ask of all my Shining Star guests. If you had the ability to snap your fingers and put one thought in the collective consciousness of the entire human race at the same time, what would that thought be? Youth are our future. Let's work with them to create the one we want. I think that works. I think that works. All right, Molly, snap your fingers. Remember, we can all contribute something good to this world. No matter how big or how small, a simple smile or a friendly gesture is all it takes to expand positivity one inch further. Thanks so much for listening to Shining Stars and, of course, sharing your time with me today. I'm Dedalian, and you can listen to this episode of Shining Stars On Demand, along with other LCC Connect programs at lccconnect.org. with LCC Connect at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Engaged learning and academic success is a priority at Lansing Community College. To help students navigate their educational career, LCC has created a proactive approach to learning and providing students with several academic support services. To find out what's available, visit lcc.edu slash services. On Wednesday, March 22nd, Lansing Community College will be holding its 10th annual transfer fair at the Gannon Commons on LCC's downtown campus. Over 25 representatives will be available to explain transfer options toward obtaining a four-year degree. The transfer fair is free to attend and open to the public. For more information or to RSVP, visit lcc.edu slash march on. This has been a presentation of LCC Connect, a weekly program that features the voices, 
Vibes, and Vision of Lansing Community College. All shows featured on LCC Connect are recorded at the WLNZ Studio, located on LCC's downtown campus. Each program is podcast-based and can be heard anytime at lccconnect.org. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on one of our shows, connect with us by emailing lcc-connect at lcc.edu.